You're listening to Making Waves on WGXC. I'm your host, Becca Sims. On today's program, we'll listen to a conversation between myself and Canadian composer Paul Dolden, who's one of the featured composers during NASA's Sound Travels Festival of Sound Art, coinciding with the Toronto International Electroacoustic Symposium. Paul's music is sharing the bill with that of composer John Oswald in a retrospective of these two highly individual and distinguished artists. The concert will feature several of Paul's works, including the world premiere of Air of the Rainbow Robe and Feathered Skirt, a new work commissioned by NASA with funding from the Canada Council for the Arts, which is part of his full-length work, Music of Another Present Era, as well as his works Below the Walls of Jericho, Livresse de la Vitesse, and an excerpt from Who Has the Biggest Sound. Let's go to the conversation. I wanted to mention a comment real quick that John Oswald made when I spoke with him a couple of weeks ago. Uh, He mentioned that you and him were working at Simon Fraser around the same time or had just missed each other, Uh, but you ended up sort of discovering and using similar layering techniques during your time there. And I'm just wondering, is there something in the water out west that leads to these huge, fantastic sound worlds? Uh, Well... No, I didn't meet John when he was there, but... um, I think generally people ask me how I arrived at what I do, and it was actually more I didn't know what I was doing. When I started in the uh, mid-'70s, multi-tracking, and even before that, I guess, um, there, you know, the, the whole, there was really no new music going on in Vancouver. I mean, there was one small society, which I didn't even know about. Um, I had some... <clears throat> Excuse me. I had some contemporary music albums because fortunately I came from a home of musicians, so they had some contemporary music. So I was hearing it, but I wasn't. The technology thing was more um, a practical one for me initially because there was really no one around to play your written music. <laughs> so I started recording everything. But then, as I got involved, certainly by into the '80s. Uh, the questions, the, poss- the musical possibilities that technology allowed were screaming at me, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So I st- even so I stuck with using technology as still one of my um, main modes of production for my music. But I don't know if I would say there's anything in the water <laughs> there because predominantly the aesthetic there among most composers. Uh, when in that time and in I think still currently it's very much of a post cage post Feldman sparse and quiet is better so I don't really of course I'm sure you've listened to my music yeah. fit into that aesthetic too much no I, w- I would not align so you with so I think composers. it's more of an individual thing and I would put that if I can if I can go so far that the west coast does develop the series of uh, unique, n- unique nutcases with unique <laughs> production methods. Like I think of Harry Parch yes. and even Cage and even John Chowning with pure computer applications. Because, and it's partly just because we're isolated and we have no other means of production, but audio technology is all around us 
and somewhat affordable. So it be, it's more of a practical thing initially. But then, like I say now, I mean, you know, for 30 years, I've been totally into it because I'm excited about the possibilities that it gives that, you know, pure instrumental performance in one tempo and one tuning system. Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, only 12 notes. What? Oh, jeez. My dog can do this. Anyways. So this is, you said that in the early 80s was when you really got into technology. Does that mean you were writing sort of more? Oh, no, no. I started on the mainframe computers like in 1976, programming in Fortran 4. Uh, okay. You say you come from a musical family then. What kind of records were at the family home? Was there anything sort of weird and wacky or was it classic listening? Uh, well, I mean, you know, Beethoven's Fifth is pretty weird and wacky when you're six years it's old. True. It's true. <laughs> and it's still weird and wacky to me, you know. Uh, no, it was mainly classical music. Wow, okay. and my Yeah, and my mother liked lighter jazz, you know, but, it, you know, they were... Uh, Essentially German Mennonites, so it was a very <laughs> classical music tradition, not, not, nothing weird. I mean, I was the rebel because I went out and played electric guitar and I read that. Rock, rock bands and all that. So that, and that was to break away from those traditions, which I've only crawled back to. Actually, funny enough, my, almost all my family has perfect pitch except for me. What a bummer. Go figure. <laughs> oh, so go figure. I mean, it's like the one who doesn't, you know, goes on to be a composer. But they're all, yeah, they're all very music. Litter. Not so much my generation. I'm talking about my parents and all their brothers and sisters. Mm-hmm. And like my grandfather was a conductor, et cetera, oh, that's et cetera. So nice. Yeah. You can trace yeah. it back in the family history. Yeah, yeah. And, my, and on my father's side, he came from a long family of uh, string players, although he didn't play himself. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of, I didn't really fully understand that growing up, but then I kind of lose patients often with people who struggle musically so I don't know (laughs) anyways okay um well what I find interesting about your music actually is how instrumental it is like Mm -hmm. it, it seems to be mostly comprised of of instrumental sounds right it is completely 100 percent yeah and I feel like that sort of separates it from a lot of other electroacoustic music that I hear Well, I actually, as I mentioned earlier, I started working on uh, computers in about 1976, and I was exploring sampling, probably once again because the lack of performers in Vancouver at that time who could play my stuff. So I, you know, the idea of doing it all with machines was very attractive, but I actually stopped that, as I called it at a time, a bad musical habit, in about 1983. But anything that's all the previous electronic works I have uh, not allowed to be published, um, even though some of them won awards, but I don't care. Mm-hmm. It's just not me. I, I, yeah, I went back to microphones and recording myself and, and other people playing written studio parts because I've, there's a lot, there was a lot of problems with electronics and there is a lot of problems still with electronic synthesis and sampling i mean i'll just throw out one concept i still haven't conquered convincingly it's called legato (laughs) it's like well romantic music three quarters of it contemporary avant-garde music maybe 25 percent anyways depending who we're talking about harvel part or boulez but i mean uh you know what i mean like this is a pretty big you know it's 
called making a sentence, you know, flowing sounds together rather than chop, chop. And the whole electronic thing, I still, even though the new version, you know, with the, uh, which usually just becomes studies and kick drums, uh, I find those sounds just cold, just cold. I just don't like, I didn't like them then, but I worked with it because it was convenient. But I still find it cold. I still find it's out of body. It feels like it's from another planet. I know there's people that just love those two sine tones rubbing up against each other in perfect ratios forever ringing in your ear with but uh it, it actually gets on my nerves the purity of the sound there's i mean you know you know new musical and you know we talk about the harmonic series and we and a lot of people walk around thinking just intonation is the new gospel when they get into microtonality but you know actually when you sit down and actually analyze all our musical instruments none of them produces an absolute perfect harmonic series the harmonic series is an abstraction and it's always the basis for synthesis you know i mean so i mean right there but you know all i mean i presume you're an instrumental composer or electroacoustic i'm composer, mostly an acoustic or? composer Oh, okay, yeah. well, no problem. I mean, the grit of the bow on the string, you know, I mean, you know, all that stuff just so informs us of what the music is trying to express, and let's not get hung up on that. But, you know, the uh, there's so much, you know, just it's just like speech. Oh, Paul's talking faster and getting more excited now. This is going to be an important point because I was falling asleep in this interview. Okay, what are you going to say, Paul? Well, actually, I don't have anything to say. The painkillers are kicking in. But anyways, uh, so go back to sleep. I'll get serious again. Um, but but the thing is, I mean, you can appreciate then all the subtleties and, and, and people's personal intonation so and sense of phrasing to you yeah yeah absolutely absolutely when i in the 80s i had this whole discourse which i got rather tired of it was about humanizing the technology it was probably good for an arts grant or two anyways <laughs> but now now that we're all just up to our eyeballs in technology I, I don't even think there's a point in waving that flag it's like saying stopping industrialization you know i <laughs> think that is over paul so you know i i kind of try to raise i actually haven't been asked about that since this is verse a in quite a while but I, I suppose if I were to think about it uh, yeah I, I would put it more at that human expressive and the richness of the sound you know yeah. I mean you go wonk 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 on a low cello C note and every one of those I, I used to call them like snowflakes they look the same you think they sound the same but spectrally they're all different like how huge is your sampler I mean how can you I mean like do Steve Reich for example <laughs> I mean the whole thing about Reich is is this kind of endless flowing acoustic sustain that's the same but isn't physically you know if you do that electronically well actually people do and, and to me that's just deadening you know anyways yeah well one thing about these these pieces that i've, I've reviewed mostly the ones that are going to be featured on the sound travels concert is it sounds like there's a lot of bodies involved like can you talk a little bit about <laughs> sort of the process when you're recording the acoustic elements yeah i i should say in case the person understand first i uh i composed the pieces first on uh, paper. So, of course, obviously, I taped together many, many 32-stave uh, paper, and wow. generally I put them on the wall so I can go from top to bottom. I actually write extremely fast. Even my 
um, even my mix music, music for performers and tape. It's production that's daunting for me. And it's probably because I write quickly. I have the luxury of doing this. But I do write, you know, 400 parts, often 300. Below the Walls of Jericho, one point, gets out to 800. That's incredible. Uh, yeah, it's really obscene. Well, that's partly because I have. It's kind of easy to do that because, first of all, in that that wall cycle, I have 48 notes to the octave. So, you know, seven octaves times 48, you're already up to 330 tracks and you haven't even hit the percussion section. And then you start doing doubling. Well... Okay, you're up to 800 in no time. Uh, anyways, uh, so that, that was really quite the recording project. But anyways, I, I write it all out, and then uh, essentially I do all the string work, bowed and plucked myself, and oh, percussion wow. if it's simple. Yeah, I'll, I'll, you know, in the studio, you can stop and start. I'll do viola parts or banjo well, parts, That's very whatever. handy for you. You don't have to hire someone well, to come I save in. On the, yeah, I save on the string <laughs> section. <laughs> the string section is free in the Dolden Orchestra. Oh, so nice. But, you know, it's, yeah, I prefer, you know, like anyone playing live or jamming to sitting in a studio going over the same part. But anyways, I've done so much of that. <clears throat> and it, <clears throat> excuse me. And I essentially hire everything else, voice, winds, brass. And I've been using a lot of world music sound sources. But anyways, um, so then each musician has their, often their own separate click track or tuning tone, depending on which piece we're talking about. And I guide them in... Um, interpretive things, interpretive ideas. So you're there artistically and directing then, the uh, whole process. You know, I mix it all together, which of course before meant doing, you know, months of submixing and final mixing. I mean now I mean only now with these new hard drives, SSDs or whatever they're called, can I actually lay it all out and have individual control. But um you know, historically, the I mean, there was no 400 tracks. And, you know, boards, I mean, of course, worked in analog for a long time. I mean, boards past 24 tracks. Uh, you know, it's just, you know, you start getting weird artifacts. You know, they're like those 48-track boards. I mean, things don't line up. I mean, it's just because it's going down so much wire. I don't know. I always had this feeling that, you know, I had to reduce it to, you know, 212 stereo pairs or uh, I mean sorry 12 stereo pairs did that come out right anyways <laughs> or something you know like try to keep the amount of techno and the tape yes build but in digital now it's much better for that kind of work uh, you know I mean it w I would have had more of a life if I was 21 now starting out on uh, starting out on my life's work in fact I might have actually had a life beside work I mean I'm kind of just been in a Siberian coal mine oh my, my entire life building these uh, things like some caveman track by track. I don't know. Well, that's what I was going to ask you, Anyway, so, um, yeah, and then it's all mixed together and mastered. It's pretty straightforward. I mean, not too much. I mean, I mean, in the 80s and into the early 90s, I did a lot of playing things back at twice their speed, so, you know, the octave goes up. But the, my main interest was the... Um, speed change i'm more interested in speed than stretching things out mm -hmm. uh but now you know do that sort of work with time compression so you know it's it's all there i mean anyways what, what yeah next question <laughs> <laughs> i'm blabbing well, no, you mentioned the you just touched on this a little bit um you know technology has been changing really really quickly and I'm, I'm just wondering it must have made things less laborious well, I think actually what I find, because I do track my hours in the hope that I will have that life, 
And I actually held out great hopes for digital because I knew its potential from working on computers in the 70s. And when the first Pro Tools systems came around in the early 90s, I bought one. I mean, that was somewhat affordable. And what I found, and then, you know, as more things got added on, that, well, the first mistake I did, I started doing something I couldn't have done in the past. I started editing all these performances, like, you know, way too much because, you know, you got that visual excuse me you got that visual blob and oh god the woman above or the guy above on the next tra track they're supposed to be unison and their blobs like a little bit behind her head well here i'll just go in and move that oh the next beat oh now the other one slightly ahead oh, oh well i'll just you know like that sort of thing you start doing too much of that you know you know what that was the beauty of tape multi-track tape you couldn't move it <laughs> you, you you got what you got you know if the guys ahead of the beat or behind or were you know some classical right on nerd you know metronomic that's what you got there was no mucking around there was no quantization so i find now i'm getting more into these i perfect performance I've, i'd stopped doing the lining up of the blobs that was the, my first two years of experience with pro tools and i realized <laughs> this sounds lifeless and stiff it was all the you know non-quantized music just from different people playing with a different sense of pulse and gr groove whatever you want to call it that cr I think had created a lot of the interest in my music so I went through that so I'm careful but you know now I do a lot of really you know spiffy diffy things that you can only do in digital like I'll, I'll take performers and I'll have them you know perform in 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 12 tone equal temperament 12 through to two but then i'll go in because the programs have become very transparent you know sorry pitch shifting like all that stuff wasn't available to put it into the microtonal pattern that uh um i want but you know i'm not completely convinced certainly on strings it's just easier and i still do it this way to learn how to play it microtonally because our ears are quicker than the technology mm -hmm. still but you know with reed players brass players it is a lot of work but i'm not i'm not convinced by the time i'm paying them for studio time they come i mean before when i used to record the you know this you got to do it this way microtonally this way you know most of my works are microtonal right mm -hmm. is is and and they they you know they were up for these challenges I, I, the thing about western musicians is they uh, classical is they pride themselves on their ears and accuracy of pitch which of course then i just okay if that's what you're so proud of play the c 30 cents flat and then the c sharp 20 20 cents sharp and then the d at zero i mean <laughs> okay do you ever yeah. encounter any hostility from that type of direction no 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 because i tell them ahead of time okay. no but generally you know you know <laughs> i generally find with cl classical musicians contemporary musicians they love these challenges oh no 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 it's like uh you know the ones the ones that like balk at that i i, I just don't hire i mean that's the bottom line exactly. but i the thing is what i was going to say was I'm not convinced now that I just have them play in our tuning system and re the amount of time retuning. <laughs> you know, things like that, you kind of go, well, anyways, my, my overall point to your original question is I track my hours and I still find that basically I only produce one to two minutes of music a month working full time. I mean, that's the studio production side. Writing is obviously much quicker. So it was the same figure in the 80s. You know, it takes me a year to do a 12 to 16 minute piece. And in the work I just finished, you know, the commission for the Toronto concert in August, it was the same thing. I, I, it's, uh, I think, 12 minutes. I've 
I spent all this winter last fall. I'm just finally happy with the mix. Actually, the mix on that one was complicated. But anyways, um, so, you know, it ends up being in the same place. And also, yeah, mixing now. I mean, you can go into every goddamn fader. Oh, you know, the consonant on the entrance of that voice stands out. And, oh, you know, that one high three high piccolo notes oh just quantum well that's just superficial i mean my automation movements look like you know insanity now every fader is constantly moving because i try to avoid using compression mm -hmm. so so you know like you know what when you're in the analog you had like you know i used to have like 30 tracks under one stereo fader well you know what if part of the oboe guy was too loud here it's already pre-mixed i'm not going back it became part of the work now everything's so because we can and everyone's doing Doing it. I mean, listening to recordings today, it's just like, oh God, it's so perfect. I mean, and I want to hear everything perfectly balanced. And because, oh. you know, those automation lines are sitting right there staring at you, you go, well, and of course, once you start that, it's like a Pandora's box. Oh, well, then I'll start doing this, you know, moving the EQ dynamically, if you've mm -hmm. added some EQ. Not so much of a boost here, less of a boost there. And, and you go over the same mix day after day, the same one minute. I mean, I used to mix a 15-minute piece, you know, with the tape rolling at a board. I mean, of course, I have tons of notes in me. And it was like, you know, I was friggin' high on, like, 10 coffees to do everything. <laughs> and, like, take after take after take. Go, I think that's it. Actually, it's just the caffeine's run on. I'm falling a pile of dust. And the next day, I listen to what I think was the final mass. And I go, oh, my God. <sighs> I didn't get that fader down quick enough. I didn't. So, you know, the modern technologies have their own, their own, you know, their own, well, we're going to take up your life because now we're offering to you to do these wonderful things, which are really wonderful. And I can't refuse, you know. So it sounds like they're sort of a cause for neuroses in a way. Yeah, no, no, exactly, exactly. But of course, I, I do enjoy, I mean, for sure. I mean, I don't really listen to my music much, but I mean, except because I work on it all day. But <laughs> I mean, when I listen to the old stuff, it's like, oh, yeah, 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 for sure. And the new stuff is like, oh, yeah, that's that's perfect. You know, I mean, the mix, the balances, the tone. There's nothing that ever, you know, stands out that's not supposed to stand out. So, yeah, it's, and it's better sound quality. But anyways. So I'm going to uh, go back to one of the things you mentioned. You mentioned the piece that you're writing for this summer. So that's Air of the Rainbow Robe and Feathered Skirt, right? Mm -hmm. The Nasa Commission. Uh, so can you just tell us a little bit about working with Nasa on this commission and maybe a little bit about what we'll hear at the premiere? Okay, well, this commission for NASA is uh, the third movement of a four-movement work. The overall movement is called Music of Another Present Era, and essentially the whole work is 44 minutes long. What I'm doing in each movement is I'm looking at um, a different mythology, and I'm ba it's basically free imaginative interpretation of this mythology. I mean, this one that we'll hear in August is the third movement. It's based on a Chinese uh, historical myth, which also suggests the first pedagogy of music, too. <laughs> Because 
none of those historical myths ever really talk about teaching music. But that's not why I use it. I was more just, you know, I, I suppose in that movement, you know, because there's the idea that it's dance. So there's a lot of dance rhythms in it and fives and sevens. I mean, it's it's more happy, lively movement. Mm -hmm. And also the idea of these maidens singing. There's a lot of... Um, female voices of different cultures coming in and out singing the main theme or variations on the main theme. That's quite gay music, actually. I mean, happy music. So, um, so you know, at that level, it's, it's inspired by the original story. However, you know, that's where, you know, like I say, it's free imaginative use of these myths, because in that one, there's a lot of plucking sounds actually it seems to be the uh, uh well not acoustic guitar piece but all types of plucks i mean oh god i don't know how many different types of pluck instruments there was in there and although i use some chinese tuning systems there's also uh some uh arab tuning systems wow. so you know it's it uh, the thing is about this is it's not does not sound like chinese Music and the next movement, you know, is inspired by uh, Indian story, East Indian story, and it has really nothing to do with Indian music. No ragas, no tellas. In fact, it ends up swinging in five four, complete with drum kits. <laughs> so I mean, you know, I you know, I just wanted to do a piece that's more free imaginative because I mean if you've looked at my program notes often they're very prescriptive like below the walls is based on this historical story yes. about the walls coming down and certainly that music sounds like it. you know leave us to live a test this is postmodern you know the idea of speeding music up and collapse you know multiple musics happening at the same time and that's pretty much what you get you know so in this one I realize uh, I'm I'm doing more of a tone poem, I guess, is what they used to yeah, call it. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Cool. So it's not supposed to be like overtly programmatic. No, no. In fact, in the overall program notes for the piece, I do have some line to avoid that... Um, <laughs> that uh, being labeled that way you know like what i just said you know for the eventual critic or listener goes well i don't know this one's based on an indian story and i don't hear anything indian about it like when he's a terrible pragmatic composer you know actually i think i end i, I answer that problem about the relationship between text and music or story and music i mean i answer it very philosophically and logically and then i i think i go you know, after, I don't know, dropping some big names, I, I, I close that paragraph. This is the overall program notes for the whole piece. I go, and furthermore, as the late 20th century philosophers, Gunn and Roses said, use your illusion, you know? <laughs> so, I mean, that's literally in the program. It's like, come on, gang, you know, I can't feed you everything, you know? Like, your ability to listen to sound and create your own narrative, for lack of a better word, or sensibility, you know, that's your job as a listener, you that's know, true. and, that's you know, true. but I mean, I don't, I've never done, you know, the string quartet number one, the piano sonata number two, that to me is like, okay, come on, give me something more. And unfortunately, you know, I mean, as you know, you're a musician, in the romantic literature, what they do <clears throat> or Baroque literature, when it's these types of pieces, or even 20th century, 
uh, is they go and they, you know, they go and map the artist's biography against the chronology of the work. Oh, well, Sonata number three is when his first wife died. And we can clearly hear that in, well, no, that's not <laughs> how it works often for an artist. Often, I've certainly written my most elated and happy music when I was most depressed and vice versa, you know. So, you know, that's, you know, what the artist says and does and the, you know, characteristic reality of the finished work don't line up, especially in music. I just, that always made me feel very uncomfortable. And what did, you know, look at Beethoven. I mean, a very famous example. I mean, no one wants to spend time with this guy. And if he was alive, <laughs> I'm sure you or I wouldn't. I mean, woof. But that music is so full of, you know, humanity and life. You just think this is like a teddy bear to be with, but ugh, <laughs> you know? <laughs> no, you know what I mean? I do, like I a, do. The general personality in music doesn't line up, you know? And they're like me. I mean, most people, I'm on, I'm on painkillers today because it's a stupid... Uh, uh, um, <clears throat> root canal, but that's really acting out. But I'm going to get fixed tomorrow. But I was going to say, you know, like I think sometimes in my own, I know a lot of my music uh, you've just been listening to a bit is, is, especially the older works, is really terrifying and scaring people. In fact, actually, when I played Below the Walls, now I just played in France for a retrospective just a month ago. And I, you know, it's the first piece I selected to play. And I warned the audience, you know, this is really terrifying. It's really scary. It gets much happier and, and much more user friendly after this. Like I warn people now about that music. At the time, I thought it was really beautiful. But, you know, now I hear how terrifying it is. But, you know, well, as a personality, really I'm not like that music. Anyone who knows me will tell you that most of the time he's just making jokes, mm-hmm. you know, and searching for the show me the way to the next whiskey bar, you know. So <laughs> it doesn't lie. It's, it's almost vice versa with Beethoven. The guy was a grouch and his music was, you know, overall really positive. Well, maybe I'm not the best one to make judgment calls on this. People have told me my music sounds like it's from horror movies occasionally. I never feel that way personally. Um, but I find a lot of your music, it's, it's intense for sure, but I don't know if I would say it was scary. It, for me, it almost seems sacred or ritualized, something like Berio's Symphonia. Do those adjectives resonate yeah, Oh, yeah, you? well, of course, I love Berio and Symphonia. I was just actually listening to Coral the other day. I mean, I, 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 him and Ligeti, of that modernist crowd, mm-hmm. most I've, you know, I've put in a box on the furthest shelf of my listening. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> uh, well, no, you know, you know, God, what's it been? 45 years of listening. Okay, this stuff really doesn't work. And it's <laughs> never going to work. I can't hear what they're talking about. Forget it. But Burial for sure and Ligeti are the first two that come to mind that are really poetic in, in this medium of of modern music, yeah. uh, that medium. But, I mean, for sure, I, I, I do think uh, there's actually, I have a number of titles. I don't know if you, you probably haven't looked at my list of work, but I noticed the word ritual appears in uh, I think it's about three of my titles so I guess I do believe in that you know also the whole aspect because I I listen to a lot of music I mean constantly every day and I think the ritual of listening is very important like just when you listen you pay attention I mean I you know I mean all us classical people complain that you know, that outside of our field people just can't just sit and listen they need a visual or dance yes so, I mean, I think, you know, it's a ritual to sit and get all your aesthetic and philosophical, yeah, yeah, <laughs> enjoyments from just listening. But also as a creator, it's like, I, I you know, I'm very, um, how do you say, I'm very focused when, okay, tomorrow I'm writing and I go in and I'm very focused on that job and creating that thing. Audio production, I'm, you know, because that's more, you know 
putting the little bits together and editing and retuning, whatever. But that can be more loosey-goosey. Not, but when I'm writing, I feel it's very much of a... And by ritual, I mean full focus on the event, not in any sort of religious overtone way. No, of course. Um, so what you mentioned about sort of these um, vaguely programmatic elements, but not quite, with um, music from another present era. So you, mm-hmm. you draw on all these various myths and legends sort of from all over the globe. Is that something that regularly inspires you sonically, sort of myths oh, and legends? Oh, very much. I, history to me is probably my other major love along with music. My undergrad degree was in history, actually. And oh. I mean, I'm talking real history, not music history, which <laughs> is just, uh, you know, some accountant taking stock of when the styles and technical developments happen. That's not a history. And art history is right behind music history. It's the worst history. <laughs> I mean, I don't even count it. Like, you guys must be kidding. Beethoven was born in do-do-do. He wrote his first. Like, are you guys for real? I mean, what's the context? Beethoven's born in what how's his career functioning and what kind of i mean there's so many questions they don't ask let's not get into music history but no normal (laughs) history and in the the music of present era is partly because in the last 10 years i went to a modern university which was um you know i primarily only did history actually from uh 1200 on primarily north american european and russian but in the last 10 years i've become very very interested in ancient history i think for me I've wondered what this, my two loves is music and history. I think, I mean, because, I mean, one's so written, the other so not written. Uh, <laughs> I think for me, the thing that ties them together, my own brain or my attraction to them, is because they deal with time. I mean, when you listen to a piece of music, you go through time. And this is unique in the art forms that I really enjoy. I also seem to be very good at marking time. I usually can listen to a piece and then tell the person, well, you know what, seven minutes and 30 seconds when you brought the brass in? It didn't work. <laughs> and they're like scrambling through the time code. Oh, my God. So I seem to mark time in my head, which is a beauty for pacing your own structures, I would hope. For sure. But that's for other people to say. But the problem is I, my mind, when it's not thinking about music, I'm constantly thinking about other times and other places. And not forward. I mean, many, most people, most of our society seems to suffer from anxiety, worried about the future. I mean, no, I mean the past, like, you know, what what was life like in Babylonian times or what was it like in medieval England? I mean, it's totally screwy. Yeah. And I enjoy watching shows and reading about that stuff. I, and on that note, the only reason why I didn't become a historian is I... I have no talent for writing. I mean, writing, you know, like, and, and history is a really heavy reading, writing thing, Absolutely. like English lit. I was really good at reading and synthesizing vast amounts of information. But, you know, all my profs said, wow, you worked through so many books. This is amazing. You synthesize so well, but I can hardly read this. <laughs> oh, no. I mean, you need, you know, English writing remedial. So, I mean, that kind of killed that career. I mean, uh, whereas in music, it was, it, it, there was no problem. <laughs> so, I mean, that's partly why I fell. And also, I was making my living as a musician then, so I didn't feel a need to study music. I mean, I was already out playing. I thought, well, 
why am I going to go to music school? And I don't know. I already know this stuff, you know. So I think it, the most interesting composers. So, say, sorry, say again. I think. Well, personally, I think that the most interesting composers do have a passion about something outside of music that sort of inspires them. I know so many people that their undergraduate degrees, for example, are in something that's not music. So you say you have a degree mm-hmm, in history. Mm-hmm. I know other people with degrees in philosophy. So you think mm-hmm. this sort of extra musical, just sort of fascination with the world helps as a creator? Uh, well, it helps me, yeah, because it, it help, reminds me of how vast the world, I mean, intellectually and emotionally that we live in, and music is just one little splinter. And also, I, I, I mean, in my own case with history, you know, I, you know, I know the whole life of being an artist is brutal. <laughs> I mean, you know, and uh, but you know, it's a you realize reading history that whether it's writing or playing music or painting or writing novels, and I'm just using modern forms of uh, modern forms of creation. But you know, it is, and this is going to sound pretentious because at this time, you know, especially in North America, I find people just want to be this existential. We have no history. I had nothing to do with World War II and one, and et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> and I wasn't at me, lie, so I don't want to think about it. But you know, as a creator, you—I mean, I'm sorry. That's that's just a big friggin' privileged white middle class cop out. As a creator, Absolutely. you have to imagine that you are potentially making this is the pretentious one <laughs> the cave paintings of our time you are making the cave paintings that are going to remain possibly after your own time maybe the only thing they find about this time or just a few other things and and they're they're going to read meaning into it so you better a have something to say and you better have some grounding in about where we've been and you know projecting in the future that gets scary but just yeah, I, sometimes I feel some people's writing, and by writing I mean all forms of art, is strategic institutionally for this time and place, I mean in terms of where the institutions are. Absolutely, no. I've just been like blown away by this piece since I first heard it. Like the expansive choral part, all of the sort of fluttering activity and the strings, the guitar, the brass. It's like this whole right. universe. And it really sort of resonates with this idea of using audio technology to capture an impossible performance, which I know is something that you're really interested in. Mm-hmm. And so what is it about this idea of impossible performance that you find so attractive? Well, uh, it's because the uh, technology can uh, can do it, but also I, th- you know, I mean, 
back to a lot of contemporary music. I mean, I mean, and let's let's go. Well, how do I want to answer this? There's multiple ways in. Uh, I think a lot of contemporary music. I mean, I'm talking about works with you know, through performed. Uh, um, don't involve technology, um, you know, chamber music, yeah. contemporary. Yeah. A lot of this music, I often, I mean, more in the Fernie direction the and new stuff like that. Stuff. It's like, you know, you guys could do this much better with uh, computer sampling. Like, you know, and when you look at some of these, especially in Europe, there's a lot of young composers. I mean, you know, Fernie gives you a migraine he gives me a migraine <laughs> some of these young composers i mean they make my brain blow up i mean i just like i have to leave you know after the i mean you know i go home every night after one of those concerts just like oh god did i bring a recording of led zeppelin <laughs> and crank the headphones like oh my god just to feel where the freaking bar lines are again if nothing else not besides the fact that it's great music but it's it's like and you look at the scores or the parts, the scores, I should say, and it's like, you know, you know, you just can't, humans just can't play 13 against 11, especially in the West. I mean, we can find traces of some of these incredible polyrhythms in African music. But, you know, we did, you know, I actually find most Western musicians after five against four, it's, yeah, yeah, you're like, we're really faking the <laughs> sense of multiple streams, just at the rhythm level. And soon as you, you know, the, the other composer I've been interested in in this last uh, year or two is the late string quartets of Ben Johnson, because yes. they're all very microtonal. And unlike, yes. what, what really, by the way, when I identify myself as a microtonal composer, except for one piece called Veils, like 83, 84, I do not do, let's just sit on this just intonation chord, slowly shifting over 10 minutes to its mean tone version. I don't do any of that. It's all, as you know, fast-paced music. And Ben Johnson does this. Like, it's microtonal, but it's constantly moving. But, you know, like his seventh string quartet is not playable. And it's, just, it's only this, really, this one quartet in America that has spent like 20 years learning like you these have, three pieces. You have to have a group dedicated to learning your music like a singular yeah and that's kind of like Harry Parks but that's like once again well of course Ben Johnson's I gather 89 this year I mean if he was younger like that was back to I guess what we're talking about more like a half hour ago was was the idea of virtual orchestras and virtual performance where this question started it's like well at what point you leave performance I mean normal performance given that we get especially in contemporary music to work really with the best performers who are bored with Brahms and find it no challenge thank God so we get really good people and and you know, the 13 against 11 and possibly a lot of the way Ben Johnson is approaching his microtonality just doesn't really work in a performance situation. So that brings the question back to, well, why are you writing this and how is it going to function? Except, you know, that string quartet sits in in the Midwest. I mean, Ben Johnson's string quartet, and I gather is recording it bar by bar. In some cases, isolated sonorities is how they pulled those two CDs together. Well, that's a studio project. And once you get into that, well, you, do you want to do Dolden? Do you want to do John Oswald? I mean, you know, once we're in the studio and so dependent on it to realize the work, well, you know, there's a lot more we could be doing. Yeah, so you, you know, like, like we could go not? into 40 temples like me at once and, you know, four tuning systems at once, you know? I mean, go for it, you know? So uh, 
it's it's when I write for live performers, I, I I mean my nemesis is speed. I love fast music, and I tend to write really fast most of the time for most people I write with, which for them they usually find a. But it's usually always very simple rhythmic subdivisions. And if I write for them live microtonal, I only do it in slow passages so we really hear it. Mm-hmm. But, but, I mean, that's my own promises to myself, not to, you know, paint myself in a corner like Ben Johnson. But, but um, you know, at one level, you know, any artist has a responsibility to work. Like if you're commissioned to do a painting... You don't come back with a poem. The person wanted a painting. Well, if a string quartet commissions you and you come back with something that's clearly never going to be playable, you know, this is really arrogant of the composer, first of all, the first thing I think of. And and who the hell? Why? I mean, I actually want to hear your musical thought. But you have to figure out the medium to actualize it. I mean, we all have great musical thoughts. I mean, not all of us, but any of us who <laughs> aspire to be composer. I mean, the music in my head is much better than what I produce, believe me. But it's like, how do I get that real so that like you can hear it or this other person can hear it? That's, that's the challenge, not dreaming up these abstract, uh, potentially difficult universes. It's you got to make it real, whether it's the studio or or what I'm fully understanding what people can play. And remember, in contemporary music, like I say, we're privileged. Like, if you want people to play your music outside, not that I do this, I'm still writing, you know, quote, state-of-the-art, pushing their technical um, their technical abilities, particularly, like I say, in speed, seems to be the thing that they kind of go, whoa. <laughs> but they eventually, you know, I try to keep it idiotic, mag, and they do admit when they got it, they went, no way, 16th at 180, no way, dude. And, you know, well, guess what? I wrote it for your fingers. I mean, for your instrument, idiomatically. <laughs> and so then they go, well, actually, you know what? I had to practice it, yeah, a lot, but yeah, it's, it's totally fun to play. Listen to this. <laughs> you know, so, uh, you know, but I'm aware that they'll get there. But that's my obsession. Also, that's the thing back to that discussion 35 minutes ago was, yeah, I just got frustrated being a monophonic instrument. Because when I played, I used to really play fast. Like I was trying to do everything, you know, and experience everything. It's just like, yeah, I should take this discussion I'm having with my brain somewhere else <laughs> and being a performer. It just gets irritating. It's like... John McLaughlin never goes to sleep and has too many coffees, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Well, actually, on the topic of of speed and very fast, um, Nace is presenting an excerpt from Who Has the Biggest Sound on this concert. And Mm. uh, the work as a whole, I find it to be quite quirky and and fun. And uh, the part that we're presenting is Who Can Talk Faster, Crickets or Man? Um, 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 um. 
crazy gators. What do you think this is? So this is a very interesting palette in this in this movement of the work. Um, I'm wondering like where you got the text and where the narrative sort of came from. Well, okay, yeah. I should say about who has the biggest sound because this this was um, this was. Um, quite a departure for me and something I'm thinking about returning to is I suppose one of the things about writing and producing full-time is you really get sick of yourself oh my god I mean I got started getting sick of myself 20 years ago in the Dolden gesture and you know I'm always searching around mainly through listening to uh, lots of music including non-western music for something new to grab I'm mean, just looking for stuff to steal right like anyone else of course. but but I uh, in Who Has the Biggest Sound, I really found something that totally threw off my gesture, my normal way to put the sounds together, is I analyzed uh, different animals and insects. And I mean, in this case, let's just talk about this movement, and, and I'll quickly allude to other movements, is I'm looking at crickets and cicadas, which operate, of course, at 36 sound events per second on average, 30 to 40, but they wow. really kind of come in at, you know, except 36 of those. <clears throat> and so what I did, of course, I slowed it all down, and I uh, amplified the pitch curve. And, of course, when I first looked at us, listened to uh, a swarm of crickets, actually my, my interest was the contrapuntal thing. How can so many hundreds of things be all chirping or whatever you want to call it at the same time? Buzzing is really the right word. And I found out, actually, it's not contrapuntal. They're actually completely deaf almost to each other. So, so much for that. But then I got in. It's not the, it's not the relationship between each other. It's, it's, it's one person's into it. Because what happens is the crickets only hear in a range of about three or four hertz. And they're, so they're only doing an exact uh, frequency that matches where they are in, the, in heat, in their breeding season. Oh. oh, you're vibrating at 7K right now, so am I. We should get together on this leaf. Whereas <laughs> the uh, one at 6,800, I uh, just did that. Give me a break. Uh, or I don't know. Yeah, of course, <laughs> I'm making it up as I'm going, but you know what I'm saying. <laughs> so it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's not the contrapuntal activity. It's the actual individual behavior. So I broke it down just to single crickets. And I analyzed that behavior, and what I found was essentially rounding things off, but essentially I found the rhythms of Latin Spanish music in particular, uh, flamenco, cha-cha, stuff like this. Wow. And of course, yeah, and of course, crickets and cicadas are native to Spain. In fact, until people were urbanized, that would have been your dominant soundscape. So clearly here's a case where the music's imitating the nature that it evolved in. The musical style comes out of the geography. And I went on to the other one in the piece is uh, barnyard animals. And the thing about barnyard animals, I mean, Midwest American, like cows, pigs, et cetera, when you start analyzing that, and that, that was more contrapuntal because they do answer and call, is it turned into a lot, I found, country and Western music. <laughs> and I found, a lot in, in, I, although it did not end up in who has the biggest sound, I found a lot of Chinese music in Chinese insects. And it went on and on. Like, essentially, of course, this really raised scary questions about originality because... 
we know most of these insects are 100 to 200 million years old, whereas we are, since we agreed on democracy or could sit at a table without killing each other, where do you want to draw <laughs> Behavioral human- modernity 200,000 years ago. Yeah, tops, the tops. I don't know, 50,000 years ago, we were still beating each other over the head. And we're still so. doing that now, so. <laughs> oh, that, yeah, exactly. Okay, okay, we'll call it 200. Well, that's a long ways to 200 million. So clearly we are subconsciously in so many of our music styles, or at least the ones I looked at, imitating the, the sounds. I, I know contemporary music, especially because of Messian, Messian, yeah, yes. is dealt a lot with bird calls. But, I, you know, that was too obvious. It's been done, and it's like a fallback position when you have nothing else to do. You know, you know, have the robin played by the flu, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I, just, I just went, no, all the ugly stuff, pigs, insects. Like, what's going on there? Like, these things are ugly, disgusting. We just hit them when they land on our arm. What's going on there? And it, so, so what happens is I transcribe out, back to the crickets, is because this one's all about speed right. uh, so I thought well this is no wonder I thought of this 36 notes per second this is more than John McLaughlin on 10 coffees what can I do with this <laughs> I mean or John Coltrane on 10 coffees or speed um, is I stretched it out and transcribed the rhythms and had humans play that in normal time I mean you know no more than 8 notes per second or 6 and even less for, you know, tubas or contrabassoons. And then I did what something called time compression, which is a digital trick in which you take a sound file. If it lasted one minute, you can say, well, make it last now 20 seconds. Except, of course, I'm doing it all by tempo. Right. So I sped the human performances back up to the speed of crickets without changing the pitch. So there's two things going on in this. Is First of all, um, that whole section I'm playing, which is about 15 minutes, it starts with that narrate, funny narrator. But mm-hmm. the, all the really, I don't know if you got to towards the end where there's just this really rapid uh, reed and brass yes, work yeah. and wind. Yes, that's actually the sound of like essentially uh, a swarm of crickets. I mean, multiple crickets. Even though we know they're not talking to each other, I just did it anyways. Let's let's have 50 patterns of this all played at once on horns and winds and reeds. So you're actually hearing uh, rather than just, you know, when you listen to a cricket swarm, you, it just, of course, starts to sound like a lot of high-pitched electronic synthesizer sine tones, is I'm actually putting it into our normal musical range. And, you know, they, you can clearly hear they're following a harmonic sequence, which, are, which I'm grafting onto their behavior. Sorry, it's still music. It's not, <laughs> this is not, you know, nature. So, so it, it becomes a conversation about, about, well, I think I've answered your question. I mean, so for me, this was exciting because it created different gestures because, well, the cricket did one more beep here. I would have just, there was a perfect phrase, but there's one more. So it just kept, or one less or two less or two more than the phrase structure of a perfect tango or something. Mm-hmm. Damn it, these guys can't dance. <laughs> uh, but that created the, how do you say this, strangely familiar aspect of that piece it's like well it sounds like latin music but it's really weird you know i guess (laughs) is how your average person would say it (laughs) i can't dance to it but i kind of recognize it i would give it a six out of (laughs) ten well i I dig that sort of aesthetic 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, 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 it's you know, I think uh, people who reviewed that CD very quickly went, Paul Dolden, who has the biggest sound? What a fucking egomaniac. I'm not even going <laughs> to listen to this. Um, you know, he always did. What's your point here? Uh, it's, it's not about that. Because, of course, you see the other movies, who has the prettiest mellies is based on more sonorous animals and I'm um, being, you know, the stuff being played on strings mm-hmm. and back and forth. There's a dialogue about going on in this piece about, and, and, or who, you know, all the other ones. Oh, sorry, I'm getting tired here. I can't remember all the other subtitles. Who has, who has the longest sound? Who has this? Who has that? Right. Is I'm playing, you know, our, this is how we imitate this nature. And only, only, it's more infrequent. It's not that regular that I actually, bring to bear what you're hearing like now when i do the sound of the cricket does appear at the beginning and at the end just remind you you've been listening to crickets or their <laughs> behavior and the per- that whole percussion thing in the middle that you listen to then those sort of percussion patterns which are very loud now one level that's all those patterns played on you know like i don't know so i can't remember two drums and 40 Types of congas and timbales and cymbals well. and shakers. I don't know, you know, the ar- the Dolan percussion army, you know, I don't know. You, you can't even see the end of the line, you know. Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, and that needs to be said about that piece because, um, you know, it, it gives it a whole another way of listening. It's not about me and it's not about really who has i mean at that level literally is more a dialogue with nature is what's going on and funny you know it's funny it you know, is it's, yeah. Y- y- yeah you know that's the other thing that's that's sad about new music is how serious it is you know no one ever laughs you know i played <laughs> that piece in concert or parts like an excerpt like that and there's this silliness going on and like like you know i played for ordinary people and they just like they're splitting up and of course they think of frank zappa that's the obvious <laughs> but 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 i mean you know like i never heard them laugh in a new music concert when you hit those ones you must be kidding i mean you guys jeez give it up well, that's actually... Vabern has left the room. <laughs> We're no longer serious. That's what I appreciate about this piece so much, actually, is that it was sort of lighthearted, and I so rarely hear that. Like, uh, acousmatic yeah. works especially are often just so serious. So, Well, yeah, yeah. And I will admit that musical humor is really hard. It's my first attempt. There's always been this thing, like even Lee Ross, I mean, people say, like you mentioned that piece, so I'll just talk about that piece, that there is this kind of like, are you laughing at something or at us? I mean, it is kind of this musical circus going on or something but this time it's really out yeah because of the tax in particular but it is really hard and, and i know for a lot of listeners it's the humor of that piece and the text that drives them crazy but that's also like putting you know us artists into a box like paul i just love your textures don't have someone speaking man it ruins my vibe <laughs> i listen to dolden for pure abstraction and textural stuff and you got someone talking and it's totally goofy i mean i know that's what they're responding well dude i can't keep on you know generating textures you go make your own for christ's sake for sure. <laughs> well, you know, Paul, we covered yep. a lot of ground. Good. And I'm really excited to hear your works. Uh, I sort of heard them in my headphones. I'm really excited to hear them live with NASA. And uh, thanks for your time. This is Becca Sims, and you're listening to Making Waves. That was my conversation with composer Paul Dolden. For more information on our Sound Travels Festival of Sound Art and the upcoming concert featuring works by Paul Dolden and John Oswald, go to nasa.ca. That's N A 
I-S-A dot C-A.